And we're live. Hey everyone. It's uh you're sorry, this is written out. It's very, very specific. We're testing this. You're listening to the Small Business and Deal Making Podcast with David C. Barnett, where we discuss buying, selling, and growing small and medium-sized businesses while managing risk. If you're looking to enjoy some freedom and want to discover your true calling and becoming your own boss, or if you already own a business and are looking to expand or grow or get ready to exit, then you've come to the right place for information, knowledge, and some thought-provoking opinions. Does that sound good to you? Sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> but tonight we're discussing like personal finance and investing, aren't we? Absolutely. I'm ready. All right. So first of all, welcome everyone to the live stream. We've already got people coming in, in on the different platforms. It's good to see you guys. Um, Andrew will be sticking around at the end of our talk for some Q&A. So if you have questions, please put them into the comments. I want to thank everyone for joining us live and uh, welcome all the people that are watching the replay afterwards. And um, I promised everyone, Andrew, that we would learn about six guaranteed ways to lose your money. Um, because just the other day, I tripped over some fat stacks of cash in my hallway. I need to clean this stuff up. Why don't we start off by talking about a little bit about, about who you are and why you are eminently qualified to talk about ways to lose money and some winning strategies too. Well, thank you, David. And I am calling in from beautiful Bangkok, Thailand. So you may see um, it's early in the morning, 5 a.m. here. I've got my morning espresso. So, but I, uh, the, I have uh, made plenty of mistakes just like everybody else listening. But I have one reason why I really am qualified to talk about mistakes, and that's because I've interviewed more than 360 people on my podcast, my worst investment ever. And out of that, I get to hear stories of people's mistakes. And so today, I'm here to talk and share with you and your audience what I learned. And you know that, to me, is like gold. You and I first met because I appeared on your show and I, where I talked about a deal, a deal I did where I ignored all the rules that I put out for other people and did a dumb deal and lost money. And, um, <laughs> and I like your show. It's in my podcast player. Like I, I listen to it quite often actually. And uh, I got to tell you the, the, the one, the episodes I don't enjoy so much are the people who say my worst investment was not buying a house when I should have. I prefer the people that mortgage their homes to buy Beanie Babies and stuff like that. Th those are the real good shows. Yeah, and that's where uh, it is. You know, in any interview, it gets kind of fun. But the thing that I learn is that when it comes to my worst investment ever, it's personal. You know, and for each person, I think one of the things I learned when I was a young guy, I remember I worked at Pepsi and I was in the factory managing a team of workers. And this one guy was just terrible. I mean, everybody knew he was slow. He always was making mistakes. So at some point as a young guy, I sat down with him. I said, look, you're not doing well. He said, what are you talking about? I'm the best guy here. And I thought, wait a minute. How could he not see that? And that's when I realized like everything is relative. And so, yeah, they're not as exciting when you hear the story. Like I didn't, I didn't buy Amazon and I knew I should have. But, you know, for that person, that's their story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so. So what gave you the idea for the podcast? So I've been working in the field of finance now for more than 30 years here in Thailand. And I've always wanted to do a podcast. But, you know, like, like I learned in marketing 101 is that you got to be different. You got to do something different. 
And the podcast space is very competitive. So I just thought to myself, what could I do differently? It took a long time until I came up with this idea. I sent out an email to all of my people on my list. I said, would you be willing to tell me the story of your worst investment ever? And to my shock, I got 500 written replies. And that's when I knew I had a podcast. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great idea because um, I wrote an email a couple of years ago about survivorship bias, where everyone who gets invited to come and do a TED talk and things like this, they're all the winners, typically, right? And um, the people who don't do so well, um, not many of them step forward to tell the story. And so when people go out there doing research and learning for examples and learning to hear other people's stories, the, the, the stories of what may go wrong are the ones that are the harder ones to find. So I, I congratulate you on doing that podcast because it really is a great, um, it, it's a great data set for people to have available to them. And uh, I mean, I've, I enjoy it and I've learned some things mm. from it too. So what, what are these top six ways that you've discovered that people have consistently found in order to lose their money? The best winning, losing strategies. Yeah. So first of all, I went through all of the interviews I've done. Being an analyst, I categorized them and I grouped them to see if I could find any commonalities. And sure enough, I did. And I grouped it into six things, six ways to lose your money. And I'll tell you six strategies to win. So the okay. first way, most common way that people on my show have told me that they have lost is they failed to do their own research. And that just is number one. They just didn't take the time and they didn't look into it. They got, you know, they, they rushed into it. They got overly excited, but in the end, they didn't do the research. So you specifically said their own research. Did you find a lot of these people relied too heavily upon something they were told? Yeah. If you use Grammarly, it's going to tell you no, no, no need to put the word own research there because it's already kind of implied, but I really wanted to reinforce the fact that as I like to say, people say, well, how should I learn what to invest in? I said, well, the first thing is never invest in anything that anybody contacts you about. <laughs> and that's a little bit, you know, annoying thing to say. But the point I want to do is wake people up that anybody that's calling you about an investment idea is making money from that deal. There's nobody out there that's just benevolently, benevolently picking up the phone one day and thinking, man, I'm just going to call David and give him some money. You know, I'm going to give them a great deal. It just doesn't happen. Everybody's making money. So be careful of what people bring to you. Now, the corollary to that is that, you know, there's nothing wrong once you get something like that. You know, okay, fine, you get it. But now it's time to do your research. So yeah. I want to say the strategy to win for this, and I challenge all the listeners out there, what I've learned from my podcast is you don't have to do massive research. I would suggest you just take out a, a, you know, a letter size or an A4 piece of paper and just write down. And in this case, I'm going to ask you to write down what you think you're going to gain from this. I just was talking with someone. They told me that they're going to make 100% return in the first business, first year of their new business. <laughs> write it down. Write it down because it's going to help you to think about it. Well, it's in, okay. So we shouldn't necessarily invest in something that someone has contacted us to buy. Would you expand that to maybe also say that the best advertisements probably aren't advertised with paid advertising? Yeah, I think that's it's very true. And I mean, if you're and, and one challenge to the listeners and the viewers out there is that you know look around your neighborhood. 
you see a, a shop, a business, a, a store, a restaurant that you think is good and you think, I'd like to buy that. Walk in and talk to them. You know, that's just, and I think, you know, you got a lot of experience in that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm more of a stock market guy, but I do have startups that I own and have invested in. And the fact is, is that, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I don't want people to think I'm crazy because, you know, you're never going to talk to someone that calls you, but I want you to be very aware that people that are calling you are calling you to make money from you. And so they're not calling you because of any other reason. Uh, great point. And I see that someone's given the video a thumb up. So please, yeah. if you're watching live, do the thumbs up because it, it does help tremendously. Um, what's the next one, Andrew? Okay. So the next one is number two, and that is failed to properly assess and manage risk. And these are two very, I mean, I spent long time writing these out because I really wanted to make it clear. The, the idea of assess risk, I, I use to think about before you buy something. And then manage risk is after you buy something. And so what I mean by that is that people don't really look at the downside. And, you know, whether that's, you know, working capital or that, you know, I bought this, I one of my guests bought a restaurant and didn't realize that there was a huge amount of inventory that they had to have. And so that's the assessment of risk. And then the management of risk is kind of the way you, you know, for instance, one of the best examples is just that if you're going to, if you see a stock that you really like, well, well, wait a minute, hold on. Think about making sure you've got a portfolio of stocks, not just one. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like I explained in one of my courses, which is it's the idea of jumping in a car and not putting on a seatbelt. If you don't diversify, you know, you're taking on unnecessary risk. I, I think that's a, this, this is a great point because um, uh, you mentioned restaurants and you mentioned about the inventory of food. Um, I've known many restaurateurs and, and I'll tell you the ones who really come across as knowing what they're doing, especially are the ones who talk about their menu. And I know a guy who actually went to school for restaurant management. And he said that one of the very first tools that you ever plan when you're going to plan a new restaurant or a renovation is the first thing you actually need is the menu because the menu is going to dictate what kind of equipment you want in the kitchen. But the other thing he was talking about was inventory management because what you want to try to do as much as possible is have as many different offerings on the menu that are all made from the same core elements so that you have the fewest number of, of, of skews, I guess you would call them, like yeah. items, different items, right? So, you know, you think of an Italian restaurant, you think, well, they got the tomatoes and they got the different vegetables, but those same things go in many different dishes. And this is how they avoid having, you know, something go bad because it hasn't been ordered enough. So it's a great, great point. Yeah, in my one of my courses I have called Finance Made Ridiculously Simple, I do spend some time talking about how inventory for traditional business is such an important thing because it's really the core of what we control as a management, you know, as a manager. So I, mean, I, I want to tell you a little story about this because we've, we've given the, the problem, meaning you failed to assess and manage research, but I want to uh, risk. What I want to do is just give you a way out here. And that is, I've told you to take a piece of paper and write down your gains. Now I want you to take the other side of that piece of paper and I want you to write down the risks. What could go wrong? And try to understand the probability of them, the severity of those risks, and then start to think about those risks. Now, the story that I want to tell you is that I have a business in Thailand called Coffee Works with my best friend, Dale. 
we've had that business about 25 years. So that's our, it's an old startup, but it's still going. And uh, <clears throat> Dale came to me and said, we've got an opportunity to expand into Vietnam. And that opportunity would be to partner with a particular company and take over the business of another. And what Dale did is we agreed, go out and look at that opportunity. Dale went out and looked at that opportunity, he spent about four months pulling together all the analysis. And then we met on one Monday night and he presented only the upside. And he presented the revenue expectation, everything. And then we ended the day and then we went home. And then a week later, we had it previously agreed that we're gonna meet on that following Monday and we're gonna talk about only the risk. And when mm -hmm. we did that, we sat down and it was no longer a threat. You know, Dale didn't feel threatened about his idea. We were both giving ourselves permission to go in there and talk about the risk. And once we went through all of that, we ended up deciding not to do it. And I'm glad that we made that decision because what we saw was that we could have, we had lower risk ways of expanding our business here in Thailand. And so I really advise the audience to separate the research or separate the list of things related to research on the upside from research on the downside. I, I think that's a great idea. And I, I, I've seen so many people over the course of my years get really excited about a business. In fact, uh, you know, it's sometimes called buyer fever. It was a term I learned from Ted Leverett like 10 years ago, where people get so excited imagining what it's going to be like to be the owner of a business that they then start to make cer certain lapses in their due diligence and their thinking and their logic. And I've seen that again in another situation Remember the guy with the razors who who enjoyed the shave so much he bought the company? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, well, there were there were people that, there were people that do that. They enjoy eating breakfast so much at the franchise they decide to buy the franchise and realize then later realize that once you own it you don't just get to eat there anymore. You have to do everything there and it's not not nearly as exciting. Well, another great term for that was Michael Gerber's um, term of um, entrepreneurial seizure. Mm. where you you know you just get in the throes of it and so yeah so that's number two would you like to hear number three yeah so number three so we're, we're moving down the list and this is a less common but still a common mistake and that is driven by emotion or flawed thinking and when i tried to come up with this third one i was thinking about separating it into emotions and then separating you know thinking process but you, when you get into the world of behavioral economics, behavioral finance, it all starts mixing together. And so I decided, let's just keep it all together in one. And so what I just found is that so many people make mistakes with their investing because they either get caught up in this emotion like you described of the, you know, the fever or the seizure. And then the other one is just that people don't use their brain in a good way to analyze things. And that's the flawed thinking. So I think the best way that I can come up to, to deal with this is to find, explore and list opposing views, mm. opposing views, and then discuss them with a knowledgeable and objective person. You know, Andrew, if we had a marketing expert here on the call with us, they would probably say something like, you know, almost all purchases are driven by emotional needs. And when, uh, when people make an investment, some people use the, they phrase it, I bought an investment or I'm purchasing an investment. It, it's a purchase too. And so there's, 
there very often could be some sort of emotional driver behind that. And, and I, I can imagine, you know, certain people, like if they, they feel that making an investment of a certain kind will then do something else for them in how they feel about themselves or, or maybe the way they perceive that others perception of them will change because they've now done this thing. Right. Um, and, and yeah, a very good point. It, somebody could be doing it from this this desire for some sort of emotional outcome versus, you know, getting good yield for the risk. Well, let's let's flip it and think. Well, uh, nobody's saying that you can avoid emotion. Let's flip it and say let's satisfy the emotional needs of our client. So rather than trying to satisfy our own emotional needs, you know, as a business owner or, you know, as a, as an individual, I know when I think about one of my courses, when I talk about doing it live and doing it in a boot camp format, what mm -hmm. I talk to my, my students about is transformation. I'm talking to you about transformation. This is not about information. And I know the feeling I have the same feeling when I hear, Oh, wait a minute, this could really transform me. I want that. So use the power of emotion to satisfy your customers. Nothing wrong with that. But be careful of the power of emotion when it gets caught up with money coming out of your pocket. So are you presenting these in the order of uh, frequency that they've come up in the different stories? Yeah, and the first one is the most common. That is fail to do the research. So as we move down the list, it becomes a little bit less. It's not one of those the countdown lists. It's the other way around. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so then we're, we're on, at number, we're four. on number four. Okay. So number four. Now this one just blows me away. I want to just tell you a story about a friend of mine. He's a very smart financial guy and he lives in Pakistan and, and he, also he lives in Canada. He goes back and forth. Very great guy. Very smart in the world of finance. And somebody called him and said, Hey, look, uh, we've never met before, but I've got this really great opportunity to buy a piece of land just on the outskirts of London. It's going to be turned into development. You're going to make a huge amount of money. And all you got to put down on it right now is just $12,000. Within a very short amount of time, my friend transferred $12,000 to this person he didn't know and, and lost the money forever. And that is, leads us into number four, and that is misplaced trust. Hmm. And it's just amazing how tough people can be in some areas of their life. And then all of a sudden... When something comes up, I just had an interview I did with a, a, a really, uh, you know, a, a, it was painful because a, a woman that, that I interviewed, basically she had somebody that asked her to borrow money and she ended up lending that person money without even thinking about it. And it was two years worth of salary that she lent. Wow. And she didn't, she didn't get it back. In fact, she got, it looks like she got back about half of that. But the point is that, you know, she wanted to trust that person and the people that do this type of stuff are really, really good at it. So, you know, what I say is get to know the person you're investing with and remember trust only develops over time. There is no hack for trust. If mm -hmm. you betray the trust of your wife or your husband or your best friend, it doesn't just bounce back. Hey, let's, let's spend a weekend together and rebuild that trust. Yeah. Okay. It's a step forward. But it does not come back, you know, you know, in a hack. So that's a really important thing is about trust. Well, you know, it's interesting because I was watching um, another YouTube video uh, put out uh, by someone who, who went into depth about the Bernie Madoff fraud, the Ponzi scheme that he had built up. 
Yep. And I remember hearing about the Ponzi scheme when it all hit the news and, and he was arrested and whatnot. But I had no idea what his history was. The the man like created NASDAQ basically. Like he he has an incredible resume. And and then I was like, well, now I understand how he was likely able to get this thing going. Where where because of his, you know, his resume and what he had done, people were more open to trusting him. And that's where I think, you know, people just think of, you know, that there's maybe people out there that just only ripping off and, you know, but they're actually very smart. They're riding on credibility of other people or some of their past cred cred credibility, like you've explained with Bernie, Bernie Madoff. So, you know, it is not that easy to detect sometimes. And so what I just say is, uh, you know, a good way to do this in a way that kind of can deal with uh, uh, your emotion, your thinking and this trust is a good example is that um, a while ago, I wanted to join a fitness center, but I know they have such hard tactics, you know, when you go in there, it's such a hard sell. And so what I did is I just left my wallet and all of my money at home. And then I sat down with them and looked at all their options. They're like, you can buy this now. And I said, like, oh, I don't have any money right now. So I don't have anything with me. And it was just one way of trying to overcome that emotion, flawed thinking, or that I'll all of a sudden trust this person when in fact I could have gotten a much better deal. So, yep. See, I got, I was called by a telemarketer back when I was uh, 19 years old and offered a great deal on a Bowflex Power Pro. And now, <laughs> now that I'm older and wiser, I still work out with it because I've sworn that I will use that machine until I get my money's worth. That's funny. Yes, yes. We all get trapped. We all get trapped. All right. Well, which one is next? Enjoy, enjoy the morning workout. And number five is fail to monitor their investment. And what I found is that a lot of people, they'll put money into something, but then they just won't follow it up. You know, they just yeah. don't, maybe they don't know what to ask. Maybe they're afraid to ask. Maybe they just think, Business is like investing is like that. You just give money and you know you just wait for it to come back. But it's amazing the number of people that do not monitor their investment. Can you can you give an example story of something like this? Is it is it that the investment worked out well maybe for a while a while or initially and then something went off the rails and and uh, maybe there was a point they could have done something but then they lost the opportunity. So two two different examples. One of them is. Uh, a, a person I talked to who basically said, I'm so busy running my business that I don't have time to manage my personal finances. So everything I asked him, where do you keep your personal finance stuff? He says, the bottom drawer of my desk. Every time a letter comes in from my broker or my investment bank, I just put it there. And he says, I got five years of it there. Now, in some cases, there's some stocks that went up and you know it's better that he didn't touch them, but then there's plenty that went down. So that, you know, that is definitely one. I think the second one was a guy who invested with a friend of his in a restaurant and he just gave the money to his friend and he never really followed up. And so eventually it all kind of fell apart and he felt like the guy never communicated with him and all that. And I think what I've said is the best way to overcome this is that you want to follow a regular predetermined monitoring process. Let's just take the best example, which is a restaurant. If a friend or family member convinces you to put $10,000 into a restaurant and you think it's a good idea and you like, you know, you like it, no problem. But then before you put the money in, talk to the person, say, look, I'm not asking for much. All I'm asking is once a month when the financials are in from the prior month, what I want to do is have a one hour call, you know, at your lowest time of the week. It could be Monday, 
you know, the middle Monday of every month, you know, whatever, pick that one hour and I want an update. And then, and that person will agree to it because you haven't given them money yet. And once they agreed upon it, then get them to stick to it. And then by doing that, you're going to bring a lot of value also to that person because many people don't spend time really looking at their business. You know, this reminds me, um, you know, oftentimes if you borrow money from a bank, the bankers bank's going to have some sort of system in place. They want your financial statements every year or something like this. Um, I'll often mention to business sellers who are going to be selling their business and accepting a, a promissory note for part of the consideration, a vendor take back or seller note for part of the purchase. They'll often say, well, what if the person starts to fail or doesn't run the business well? And I'll say, look, you can ask for anything you want right now. And if you want to ask for a monthly report, some in the example of a restaurant, you could have a report from the POS. You could They could actually see what's being sold. And it's amazing that someone who's run a business for years, when they look at some of those reports, can often spot things that a new owner would never see. And I've actually had firsthand experience in selling a bar. And one of the things that the seller wanted because he was financing part of the deal was the monthly report from the automatic liquor dispenser at the bar. And uh, it didn't take more than three months before the seller called up the buyer and said, look, you have a problem. There's someone stealing from you. And here's how I know. And it was because he knew those numbers. And when things started to go off, he alerted the new owner who was then able to fix it before it dragged him down into a black hole. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a great story. And what that tells you is that if you do that with a, with the seller and you're the buyer and you agree upon that, you've just hired a consultant for free. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah, because they want to get their money. They want you to be successful. That's the whole point yeah. of arranging yeah. it that way. And I mean, yeah. don't be an idiot, you know? Say, you're my partner, and we're going to make sure we get you paid out. And if I can pay you out on time or even early, it means I'm making money too. So, you know, that's that's mm -hmm. fascinating. I like that one. Yeah. Um, I, I want to I talk in a moment. I want to talk about why monthly. Remember I said a monthly monitoring process. But that leads us into number six. And this one is kind of a catch-all. I had a hard time how to handle this one. I had so many people that talked about this problem or this mistake, but it really involves the other five. And that is invested in a startup company. <laughs> okay. And what I've found is that um, there's a lot of people that come on my show that have invested in a startup company and lost it all. And what I would say is start from this reality. You are likely to lose everything. Hmm. And uh, startup companies are binary. And I think that's part of what's interesting about what you do and what you help people do is to say, when you're investing in an existing business or buying an existing business, it's less binary. You're not at that binary part anymore. But at the startup stage, it's either win, you know, and, and it's not necessarily win big. It's either win or lose. Well, I think earlier you talked about diversification of a stock portfolio, you know, if you're going to invest in publicly yeah. traded stocks. And if you look at the professional investors in startups, the you know venture capital angel investors, like those types of people, um, what you notice about them is that they often are people with a lot of money and they don't put it all in one company. They, they had take a portfolio approach just like a stock market investor would, knowing that a couple might come out even, a couple of them might be home runs and the you know maybe 70% of them are gonna flop. Uh, but they're they're ready to play those numbers because, you know, they and they can probably afford to lose it all anyway. 
But uh, for an individual, you know, and of course, when these things get started, people often have to go to friends and family. And that's, that's where people get into this type of stuff initially. It's, it's risky. Um, yeah. Well, I think one of the pieces of advice when people come to me and say, I've got this, you know, angel investing idea and blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, it sounds interesting, whatever. But what I would tell you is that you got to find nine other investment ideas, you know, that are startup ideas and make sure you only invest 10% of your money in this one. And they're like, how am I going to find nine others? I said, well, just the fact that you can't find nine under doesn't mean that you shouldn't be diversified. And that's where, you know, there are now more and more like platforms that are allowing people to get a diversified exposure to startups and stuff like that. So I've been watching that, but I don't, I don't know much about it, but I've seen that. I think that that's an interesting, you know, thing. Mm. Um, so that now I will say, I've got some bonus material for you if you're interested and some extra bonus, ways to lose money. Yeah. Lesson. Okay. Listen, I'm telling you, I, it's endless. In fact, it is literally endless, the numbers of ways we can lose money. But I, won't, I, want, I want to make sure we do come to an end. But what yeah. I did is I, I looked at, I decided a couple, about a month ago, to look through all of the interviews I did that were startups and say, well, could I classify those into some common mistakes? And so I came up with six common mistakes that the startups on my, on my podcast uh, you know, made. And so the first one is bad hiring decisions. That's number one most common mistake. Number two, poor management of time and people. They thought they were a good manager, but they weren't. Mm -hmm. Number three, ineffective teamwork and collaboration. Number four, waited too long to start selling. Number five, weak accounting and finance. And this is where I say the best tip I can give anybody that's doing a startup is you've got to close your books every single month and review those closed books and number six low product quality they just didn't have a great product okay so so do you know what i take away from that list all of the things pretty much as far as i can remember on that list have to do with just the everyday management of the affairs of a business none of them had to do with the quality of the idea that sparked the whole thing <laughs> yeah which is all it's everyone ever talked about it, everyone talks about the idea, but it's pulling it off and getting the right people in place and hiring people and then making sure that it's made correctly if it's a product or what have you. It's yeah. It's like it's like uh on the road to your idea. Bad execution, you know, crashes you on your road to your idea, you know. And yeah, that is all of it. The last one was low product quality. So yeah, it is really about the fact that, you know, you just hire the wrong people. You don't know what you're doing. It's tough. So those, and I mean, for the, for the listeners out there, this is not necessarily my, I've, I've interjected my own opinion, but the fact is this is a survey and, you know, in the academic world, we do surveys and it, there's plenty of research that's done on surveys. Well, consider my podcast a survey. I'm asking the exact same questions consistently now over 360 episodes. Come on over to myworstinvestmentever.com and start, you know, dig into the survey that I've done. Type in words about companies that you're thinking of investing in or industries or mistakes and all that. It's all right there. So ultimately, it's a survey that we can take a lot of value from. Well, and, and you know what? I'd like to say something about the employee and the hiring and the management of people part of what you just said about those last things. 
because this is something that I've noticed over the course of time is that um, the some of the best qualified people out there in the world um, are trying to get employed by companies that give them a lot of perks and benefits and, and a sense of security. So if you're a new startup, it's hard for you to offer anything like that. And what and I've, I've seen people that I've known in my own social circles that were very capable people talk about how they were offered opportunities to go work with startups and just shied away from it because they didn't have any confidence in the future of that enterprise, right? And they'd rather wait for a job offer from Coca-Cola or the phone company or something like that, right? And so, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great list now. It's hard to get the magic together of well, like the founding team. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now that you've helped me lose almost all of my money, um, Andrew, what am I going to do to grow it and, and get it back? What are, what are my winning strategies? What, what I want to say is that after, after each one of these, I've tried to give you some way of mitigating that risk. And, um, and that is, you know, if we go back to number one, I talked about getting out a piece of paper and writing down the return yeah. that you expect. Number two, I said, flip it over and then write down the risks that you can, you know, see in that. And I talked to the story about Dale and I investing in Vietnam and having two different meetings, one for return, one for risk. For number three, for emotions or flawed thinking, I talked about finding, exploring, and listing opposing views and discussing it with a knowledgeable and objective person. And then for misplaced trust, I said, get to know the person you're investing with and remember that trust only develops over time. For the idea of failed to monitor their investment, I said, once a month, close books, mm -hmm. follow up. And finally, with invested in a startup company, the idea is start from this reality that you are likely to lose everything. So the thing that I'm going to add on to that is that what I've learned in all of my years in the world of finance uh, is this. Separate creation of wealth from the building of wealth. And we create wealth in only a very small numbers of ways. Number one, we create wealth by having a business that generates a profit and then pays us a dividend ultimately, let's say in the most simplest form. Mm -hmm. And the second way that we create wealth is if we can live deeply below our means. Let's say we make uh, $10,000 in a month and we can live on $6,000. That difference, $4,000, we have created that wealth. And then I look at the stock market as a place that you grow that wealth not that you create it. And if you can think about the separation of creating and growing wealth, you're way ahead of most people. Hmm. Great, great points. You know, you talk about living below your means. I've recently started to refer to referring to that as, as knowing how to run a household profitably because it, you know, savings in a household is essentially running a household with a profit and uh, you know bankers, lenders, et cetera, that might want to help you out when you buy a business, if they can't see that you can run a household profitably, it's going to be hard for them to accept that you can run a business profitably. And so one thing builds upon the other. And uh, I've heard many people talk about things like the stock market as being a place where you store wealth versus, versus making it. I mean, uh, maybe you know this. Uh, do you have any idea of what percentage of investors you know, become wealthy through activity in the market. I mean, I'm sure there's some traders and things who like, you know, Carl Icahn, Warren Buffett. I mean, these guys are come to mind, but 
they've got to be vastly outlying statistically, you know, in their activity. Well, in fact, if you think about 10,000 people in a, in a stadium and we have them all stand up and flip a coin and we say, if you flipped heads, go to one side. If you flip tails, go to the other side. Now we've separated them into two groups, 5,000 each. And now we say, if you flip heads twice, stay standing. And if you flip tails, you know, a second time consecutively stay standing, we know that 2,500 will fall, will sit down and 2,500 will remain. Mm -hmm. We ask them to do the same and say, whoever flipped heads three times or tails three times, stay standing. If we go through that process 10 times, we're going to have 10 people standing that have flipped heads, heads 10 times in a row and 10 people standing that have flipped tails 10 times in a row. We know this very simply from statistics. And what I would challenge the listener is that that underlying process of variability and underlying process of randomness is underlying everything in life and it underlies the stock market. And so you talked at the beginning of this whole discussion, you talked about Warren Buffett and he was the guy that flipped heads 10 times in a row. Hmm. But recently I've met a guy, his name is Warren Buffett. <laughs> okay. And Warren Buffett flipped tails 10 times in a row. But I can't find his book and nobody's interviewed him. <laughs> so let's go back full circle to where you started with the concept of survivorship bias. Yeah. And that is that. And so when you look out at winners in the stock market, first of all, you have to think that every year, some are going to be 50% are going to be beating one group and the other 50% is going to be losing. And, and that's, and that would be winners that are consecutive winners. But you also can say that those people are coming from luck. It becomes a lot more difficult to answer the question, was Warren Buffett's winnings because of luck or skill? And think about it carefully because we know that statistic tells us that there will be winners at the end of that period. Mm. And so the question is separating that luck from skill. And that's very, very hard to do in the academic world. We try to do it. Uh, there's a theme, a concept called false discoveries where you think you found out performance, but in fact, it's just luck. So just my last piece of advice, I think, on this is the idea of understand the role of randomness and luck in that's underlying all of the activities that we do in this world. And all of a sudden, your mind is going to be blown because all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm giving bonuses in my company for people that really actually is just based upon the luck or the randomness of the outcomes. And, you know, it was Mary I gave the bonus to this year and next, next week, next year it's Jane and the next where, you know, year it's John. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like the employee of the, of the month club at McDonald's there, you know, you go in and you see, wow, everybody on this team has been an employee of the month. So that I was taught that by my, one of my teachers when I was 24 years old, his name was Dr. Deming and Dr. Deming taught me in, in a couple of sessions that I did, that you know, understand the role of randomness and variability. And once you understand the underlying process that's underlying in everything, then it's gonna help blow your mind about the way you think about everything. I, I've seen this in the world of small business myself many times over, Andrew. I've, I've, I've had discussions with people and I've left the meeting going, wow, I can't believe that these people are succeeding in spite of all of their efforts. They're doing everything wrong and nobody should want to do business with them but they happened to sign the licensing agreement to be the dealer of the XYZ machine just before the 
XYZ boom. And now everyone has to drive over here and buy one because they won't answer their phone. So that's the only way people can get them. And um, yeah. And you're like, wow, like they, they're successful in spite of what they're doing. And it has to do with just things that panned out for them. And, and of course they take the point that they're business geniuses that they've, you know, that they obviously are better at doing this than anyone else. It's, it's true. There's a certain amount of luck in things. Two people go out for a walk in the morning and just by chance, one of them twists his ankle and that twisting of his ankle leads to a tremendous waterfall of events that lead him into different activities that would have been very different than if the alternate history happened. He walked out and he didn't twist his ankle. And chances are that that twisting of the ankle was by luck. Yeah. We got a few comments here from people in the chat room. Yeah. Michael says, wow, I can't wait to watch this again. Thank you both. Yep. Thanks for watching, Michael. And anyone else who's watching, please give us a thumbs up. It really, it really does help. Um, and we have another comment here from Bernard. He says, this is a definite must share on LinkedIn and other networks. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Thank you, Bernard. It would be great if everyone watching or listening would do us a favor and, and share so that we can spread the word and more people can uh, learn about this show and, and Andrew's. And Andrew, you were talking a little bit about finance made ridiculously simple. Um, I, I'm you had you had given me a, a test copy of that, and I'm 81 percent of the way through. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the first section about accounting, I thought you had a really novel way of of teaching people how to comprehend some some very interesting, like some some of the more complex thoughts about understanding accounting by giving an example of a business starting, doing a couple of periods, and winding up. Uh, I thought that was great. And here on my channel. I talk all the time about the problem of too much leverage, too much debt. And uh, what I found very insightful about your program is you talked about the actual um, debt versus equity in these big companies, some of the biggest companies on earth. And it isn't anywhere near what people try to do in the world of small business. Um, you'll have to remind me, is it on average, it's about 45% equity, 55% debt? Yeah, that's about it. It's uh, for, let's say 40, 60. Yeah. And, and even that debt, when we talk about that debt, sometimes that's not even all debt. Some of it's like accounts payable or something like that. But um, I appreciate that about the course. I've been teaching finance now for 30 years and I really, really locked down during the COVID time and thought, how can I really, really make finance ridiculously simple? And so what I use in the beginning of that is my own experience in my coffee business. And it turns out that a coffee business is actually a good way to understand, um, you know, accounting because it's a very simple business. You know, we get raw material, meaning raw coffee beans, green beans. We roast them, we package them and we ship them as finished goods. So I use that and use my own personal experience and try to bring a lot of fun and energy to it. But then all the data that I bring together about the different sectors and the returns and all of that allows anybody by the time you're done there's a lot of repetition where we're repeating what does a balance sheet look like what does an mm -hmm. income statement and it's through that repetition that you really start to understand it and you'll notice also i don't talk about cash flow statements because it's not as critical you've got to get your pnl and your balance sheet cash flow statement is something that comes from those two statements and so i really focus on cash flow is kind of more advanced but for right now get your income statement and your balance sheet and if you Believe what I say to say the number one thing 
for a startup that I recommend is make sure you close your books on a monthly basis. This course allows you to understand what you're really seeing when you look at the P&O and the balance sheet. Yeah, well, and, and you do a good job of illustrating how debt is the element that creates risk. Uh, I've had um, I've had people ask the question, actually, I made a video and I'll, I'll put a tag to it here. It'll be floating above the screen somewhere where somebody actually asked if um, having debt in a business increases, um, what was the, the exact word that they used, um, increases the volatility of the business. And I flipped it around and basically said, now, what we know about debt is that any type of uh, volatile business shouldn't have debt. And this is why all of your new startups, all of your, like we talked about, they all come looking for these equity investments because no lender out there, will, of course, would ever lend them any money uh, because they don't have a proven cash flow stream that they'd be able to service that debt with. It's It's got to be that rock solid investment from the owners that doesn't have to be paid out and doesn't require any kind of cash flow servicing to uh, to maintain, that's what gives a company its solid foundation to be able to weather things that come along and mm. take advantage of opportunities when, they, when they're revealed. You know, having been a, a lecturer of finance all my life, you know, in the, in the financial books and stuff we talk about, taking on debt because it allows you to leverage up and earn more return on your equity. And in theory, it's great. You know, in theory, it sounds good. But when you're running a business, you have to be careful. Re really, debt is probably your number one risk factor that you've got to manage. And I'll just give you a personal example. Right now, Thailand is in a, in a lockdown period, which basically means that the, the revenue of my coffee business is being crushed because hotels are closed, restaurants are closed. Those are our main customers. And so the first thing that we talked about a long time ago between me and my business partner is how much do we owe the banks? And we've kept that amount down. And in fact, we don't owe the banks that much. So the point is, is that they are the ones that can really squeeze you and they can shut you down. They can mm -hmm. file bankruptcy. I mean, other people can try, but the banks are very experienced in shutting you down or trying to take over your business or squeeze you. And, you know, every other debt that you owe or every other thing you can usually negotiate a bit, but generally not so well with banks. So. I really, really highly recommend that you know everybody look at the amount of debt that they have on their balance sheet and make sure it's not a lot. And if you were getting squeezed on the revenue side that you could survive, maybe even pay it off. So just be careful about debt. Hmm. Yeah, Great there comments. One, there is yeah. one last thing I'll say. I mean, there are some times that the government incentivizes people to borrow, which is really dangerous. You know, you're just, and a great example in the US is to borrow for a home loan. They give you, number one, a 30-year fixed loan. It's crazy. 30-year fixed. No bank could do that. It's only the federal government that allows that. Number two, the Fed has kept the interest rates so low that it's almost like free money, 3% locked in for 30 years. And there's you know tax write-offs that you can take related to your house, and it's tax deductible. They make it so seductive that how could anybody at this time not go into serious debt and just be careful. Uh, uh, it happens in the world of small business too. Um, you know, with, through the the COVID pandemic and everything, the uh, the government in the states has used the SBA as a as a conduit for getting money into the economy. One of the things that they did is they gave everyone who had an SBA loan a six month payment. No, it wasn't even a payment holiday. The federal government made the payment for them. Okay, 
And then they said, if you got a new loan within a certain period, they would give you the same deal. So there were people going out trying to leverage up as much as they could so that the value of this gift would be as much as possible. To your point, encouraging people to take on more debt. You know, I thought the 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 six months of payment was because they knew they couldn't process all the defaults. Mm. But then they turned around and made it into this thing where they're trying to shove money out there. And it, it really often does remind me a lot of the whole subprime mortgage thing. Uh, doing whatever is they're able to, to get as much money into the system. And, and uh, who knows where this will lead us. A lot of people have some theories about what it could do as far as inflation and, and, and everything else. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Yep. The risks are high. We've got another great comment here from Jordan. Love the separation of reviewing pros and cons of investing in a deal, including the simple process of writing out on a single page the potential gains versus risk. I agree, Jordan. It's uh, it's a great idea. And um, yeah, well, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to talk to you again. And um, if people want to find you, why don't you give the podcast uh, yep. website yep. and then and also the finance made ridiculously simple one in case anyone wants to check that out. So I think I'll uh, I'll give you a link to the finance made ridiculously simple that you can share uh, out there uh, with some discount on it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, anybody who wants to learn more about this is very simple. How to connect with me? Go to myworstinvestmentever.com. At that, at that website, there's an about page. You can send me a message right there, and it comes directly to my personal email. So that's step number one. Step number two is listen to some of the podcasts. Type in your industry and see if you can search and find somebody that's actually made mistakes that you can avoid. So that's the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome. And so, Andrew, send me that link. I will put it into the show notes, either on YouTube or whatever podcast uh, app you're using. Uh, look in the show notes to get that link for Andrew's uh, special offer. And Jordan says he's curious to learn more about the coffee business. Um, you had told me once that you guys actually financed the, some of the machines for the little local coffee shops. Is that right? Yeah. So we have two parts to that coffee business. Basically, we're a roasting factory. But a roaster really also always needs to sell machines. And many people, coffee shops, hotels, restaurants, don't want to put out the upfront money to buy those machines. So part of our business is financing those machines. So we sell them, but we also you know, uh, allow people to make payments. And that, that means we earn some interest on that. So there's, that, of course, makes it a little bit more capital intensive. We have to come up with the cash for all the machines that are out there. But if there's a good return on it, then it's not a bad business. So yeah, the coffee business is something that uh, we've done for 25 years and um, it's, it's a great business. And I think the coffee industry is a great industry. It's the, the thing about it, it had a worse time when we thought we were going to crash in the 1997 crisis. Um, we just looked at each other and say, we're not reinventing the wheel. This is not some startup of some, you know, esoteric type of thing. This is just simply coffee. And Last night, now 25 years later, we had our meeting that we have every Monday night. We usually do it over spaghetti at an Italian restaurant nearby. But we had that meeting last night and we talked about how to handle a, a you know, 50 to 80% fall in revenue because of government lockdowns. And how do we make sure that we survive through that? And we've already been working through that. But luckily, the two of us have run that business together. Dale is the managing director and I'm more of an advisor. But the point is, is that if you're in business and you're doing a small business, don't do it alone. 
And I think having a partner or having a friend or having someone you can trust mm. is critical. Someone that you can rely on to talk to. It doesn't even have to be someone in the business. Ask a friend that you trust and you like, would you mind if I spend an hour once a month just sitting down and talking with you about this and I'll listen to whatever you've got. You'd be surprised how many people would say, let's do it. I've, I've always been a big, uh, I was in a, in a mastermind group for over 10 years and, um, and the, what was great about it is that the members of the group were part of different businesses. There were no similar direct competitors. And the number of times that somebody expressed a certain problem that somebody else said, oh, we do it this way in our business. And it was just like, that was the solution. It's just another right, industry deals it. with it. They know how to deal with it. And this is how it's done. And um, and again, like, where can you go to talk about the issues that business owners have, you know, talking about employees, talking about customers, talking about bankers, you know, share gossip about lawyers in town, whatever it is going to be, right? You know, where are you going to do that? You need to have some friends that are also business owners. And for most people, we have friends that come to us from our days in school or, or you know, a team that we're on or something like this. Um, you need to have a set of friends that understand your circumstances. <laughs> well, I'm in a, one of my uh, Facebook groups that I'm in is called Create Awesome Online Courses. And I, a guy named David Seitman Garland, and I really like him, but he had someone in the group said, you know, a friend of mine told me that I shouldn't name it this way. I shouldn't name my course. And David's, you know, I shouldn't follow your way. I should follow my friend's way and say, David said, how many millions of dollars has your friend generated in revenue from online courses? And they said, zero. Say so. So which, who are you going to listen to? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Ask uh, for help from qualified people. Salvador Reyes says, do you think that there's an economic crisis around the corner? I think for a big chunk of people, there's an economic crisis right now. And this is why governments all around the world are doing things like what we're talking about is that that's what they feel is the solution to, to help people. Um, I, there's one of the things I love to say about economics. And I know one of the famous economists said this is that, uh, studying economics is the study of the things that are unseen, the unintended consequences, you know. Mm. And so every action has some other reaction that gets knocked along. And we don't exactly know what those are going to be. So, you know, government reduces interest rates here in Canada. And now we've got, you know, homes in Toronto selling for 14 times the average income. Like, so how, you know, how do then do you unwind that? Does the government then announce they're going to they're going to create this scenario for the price of houses to crash? That doesn't get people elected, right? Yeah. So, so <clears throat> what's going to happen? We don't know. Well, I think Salvador, what I would say is that you know, in life, everything's a balance. And living in Asia, I think I've learned that that everything's a balance. And the point is, is that when you squeeze on one area, it's going to impact another area. And so, yeah, I think there are risks. I think I, if you go to my, uh, my website where I do all my blogs, which is called becomeabetterinvestor.net, I've recently written some stuff about inflation. But I think the big thing we're going to face is that inflation is going to really start to rise. And that's just my opinion based upon the research that I've done. And that ultimately, I believe, is going to put pressure on the U.S. dollar. And then the U.S. government is going to do everything they can to try to keep the dollar as strong as possible until eventually it starts to really lose value. And I think that is, you know, the big crisis that I'm worried about. And so, yeah, if I think about a crisis, uh, that is it. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, well, look at growth. Growth is great. Yeah, well, it's like saying, um, I just broke your leg. Now we've got it in a cast. Today you could walk three steps 
and yesterday you could only walk one, we've made a three times improvement. That's massive growth. That's bullshit. <laughs> you know, that is, you broke my leg and now you're, you know, cheering that I can now get up and walk three more steps than I did, you know, yesterday. But that is not, you know, that's destructive growth. And that's what we're seeing is a bounce back growth. So from a longer term perspective, we'll see things that, you know, I think, I think we'll see damage that people didn't expect. Yeah, I agree. And uh, Anthony wishes us good night and says that uh, we both look like Charlie Munger, which, which is awesome. I like Charlie Well, I, I hope that we sound just a little bit like him <laughs> rather than look like him. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. That is what he says. He says, thanks, very Charlie Munger-like. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the thumbs up. Um, and uh, we're going to have to sign off. We're at the end of the time. And uh, we'll wish you a good morning in Bangkok, Andrew. I'm, I'm sure you have time for a few more cups of coffee today. And uh, I'll have to give it a taste test. Uh, when I'm in Asia, I'll stop by and say hello. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, thanks Bye. to everybody and thanks to you, David. And don't forget, everyone, if you haven't already, head on over to davidcbarnettlist.com. Sign up for my email list. Uh, it's the best way to keep it on top of everything that's happening, like getting a notice about uh, Andrew's appearance, for example. And if you're going to be buying a business, learn how to do it in a risk-controlled fashion, which is what I teach over at businessbuyeradvantage.com. And with that, We'll say see you later and we'll talk to you next time.